Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. If you have your Bibles today, I want to ask you to take them and open them with me to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 10, for our message and for our time together today. Um, Over the course of the last few months now, we have been in a sermon series called Unhindered. And we've been specifically looking at God's Word at, at things that will hinder us in our walk with the Lord. In fact, there are numerous things that God's word says very directly that if these things are true in your life, they will hinder your prayer life. They will hinder your Christian walk. In fact, I think we've seen over the course of the last few months that when these things are present in our life, they not only hinder us in our Christian walk with the Lord, but in many ways they hinder us in our relationships, even with one another in the body of Christ. There are many things that the Bible clearly speaks of and says, in essence, this will hinder you. This will prevent you from growing. This will rob you of joy. This will hinder you from walking forward in faith and in obedience. Today, the thing that we're going to focus on is not quite as clear as some of the other ones. Some of the other things that we've studied that are hindrances, frankly, the Bible makes it clear they're sins against God. And so it's crystal clear, like black and white, like we know these are things to avoid and reject. For example, we studied the hindrance of pride. That pride goes before the fall, and literally, when we come before God with a proud heart, literally, the Bible says, he's not going to hear us when we pray. We understand that pride shouldn't be a part of our life. We've also seen the hindrance of unforgiveness. What happens when we we harbor that uh, those feelings of unforgiveness? We refuse to forgive and let go, and even though we've been forgiven by God, we refuse to forgive others. That's a huge hindrance for us. We've seen the hindrance of rejecting God's word and disobeying God and going our own direction and doing our own thing. Many things that are crystal clear in God's word. Uh, Last week while I was gone, Pastor Michael preached on the hindrance of compromise, that, that whenever we have biblical convictions that God has shown us, this is not right, these are things you should avoid, and these are things you should do, oftentimes instead of staying true to those convictions, we give in to the lies of the, of the Satan, and we give it into the temptations of the world around us, and we begin to slowly make compromises, and it leads us into really a, an unhealthy and ungodly path. Today, the hindrance that we're going to study is not as clear, and yet it is powerful in the way that it hinders us from the things of the Lord. It's the hindrance of insignificance. The hindrance of insignificance. I wonder this morning, as we open God's word, has there ever been a time in your life where God was convicting you to do something? God was putting it on your heart, a task that he was calling you to, a a ministry, something to be done, something to be accomplished, and you knew within that moment you should say yes to the Lord. You knew in that moment you should surrender and say, yes, God, I'll be obedient. But instead, you began to make excuses. Instead, you looked at yourself and you said, but God, I, I don't have the time for that. God, I don't have the the resources. I don't have the money for that. God, God, I don't have even the skills for that. I I mean, I don't have that ability. And and God, somebody else could do this better. And someone else is more skilled. And God, surely there's someone else that you could call to do this. Has there ever been that time that God was calling you to do something that instead of saying, yes, frankly, you saw your own insignificance, you saw your own limitations, and as a result, you stayed put, you didn't say yes to the Lord. In Mark chapter 10, we see a very familiar passage of scripture. And frankly, I believe God shows us many things in this passage. But one of the things I believe he shows us is what happens when people view us as insignificant or what happens when we feel ourselves inadequate, if you will. What happens? How does that often hinder us? And what does God want us to see so that we can overcome it? Mark chapter 10, the hindrance of insignificance. I want to ask if you're able to do so, would you stand to your feet for the reading of God's word? Four verses of scripture, very familiar. I have preached them from this pulpit before a few years ago, but I believe they have a powerful lesson for us here today. The Bible says this, and they were bringing children to him, this is Jesus, so that he might touch them. That is, he might pray for them and bless them. Listen to this statement, verse 13. 
But the disciples did what? Rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Then Jesus took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the time that we have together. We thank you for your word. Thank you for this simple and yet powerful illustration of how you ministered to, really in that culture, what was the least of these. Those that were often seen as insignificant were the very ones that you took time to minister to. God, I pray in that that you would teach us powerfully. I pray, God, where we feel insignificant today, that you would remind us of what you have said about us. And God, I pray that we would listen to your truth and not to the lies of the enemy. May our lives be transformed today for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. you may be seated this morning. The hindrance of insignificance. I wonder this morning, have you ever thought about the way that our perception impacts things? Sometimes there are things that we look at and we, from our estimation, we, we perceive things to be very important. This is significant. This is something you don't want to miss. But then over time, we come to realize that what we thought was so important at that moment, we later come to realize oftentimes it wasn't as important as we thought it was. There are also some times in life that there are seasons and situations where we think that, hey, this isn't that big of a deal. This is going to come and go. Not not really much to talk about here. Later to find out that that was the most important thing that could have taken place in that moment. Sometimes our perception of things, our evaluation of things is not accurate. It can be greatly skewed from reality. Let me illustrate that for just a moment. Many years ago, uh, many more years ago than I care to admit, I was in high school, and I lived in Montgomery, Alabama. That's where I grew up. That was my hometown, and specifically on this particular night, on a Monday evening, there was a large church in town that was having a, a large, a, a big community service, an, a ministry event, where they were bringing in some athletes all throughout the state of Alabama. Now, I wanted to be there that night, and for the life of me, I don't remember why I wasn't there, but I was unable to attend, but I had several friends who were there. One of my friends who is there, his name is Corey. Corey grew up as a diehard Auburn Tiger fan, which meant he needed Jesus very badly in his life. That's what it meant. I'm an Alabama fan, but Corey and I were good friends. We played baseball together, played basketball together, went to school together, good friends. Even when I go to Alabama to this day, Corey's one of the friends that will go out of his way to always stop by and say hello. Corey went to this particular service and and, and it just so happens to be that day that as he was there in the service and as the pastor was preaching, there were two college athletes that spoke and shared their testimony. It just so happens that these guys were favored by God because they both were Alabama football players, okay? They went to the good school, all right? And so it just so happens that one of the players was a quarterback. He was well-known. In fact, he was getting ready to go into his senior year of college. He had been a starter for a year or so. He already has statistics. And frankly, he had a very charismatic personality. He was very articulate with his words. And so as he spoke and as he shared, a lot of people connected with him. He was popular. Everybody knew him. And, and that was that. Well, after he got done sharing his testimony, another young guy, a young college football player, stood up and shared his testimony. Now, the second guy, frankly, he didn't have a very charismatic, outgoing personality. He was very quiet, kind of an introvert in his personality. Uh, He wasn't very passionate, very kind of calm and monotone in, in his presentation of his testimony. Interestingly, this guy was a redshirt freshman college football player. Now, if you don't know college sports, that means he had been on college campus for a year, but he had not yet played a single snap in an actual game. He had not even seen the field, didn't even have a single statistic. In other words, nobody really knew who this guy was. Well, they had the service, shared the testimony, the service came to an end, and my buddy Corey, who was so kind to think of his buddy Matt, thought to himself, I am not an Alabama fan, but Matt is. I'm going to get him an autograph. And so as Corey and all the different students left the the sanctuary that night, 
they went out into the lobby and there literally were two tables set up where the players were there signing autographs for people. And Corey thought, well, obviously I want to get the quarterback signature. Everybody knows who he is. He's popular in the state. I mean, he connects well with people. Everybody knows who the quarterback, nobody knows who this other guy is. Corey went to go get in line. And when he turned the corner to get in line for the autograph, he realized it's going to be hours to wait to meet this quarterback. And at that moment, Corey began to realize the time was getting close. His ride to pick him up from the church service that day was going to happen in about 10 minutes. He knew he'd never get an autograph. So Corey instead went to the other table where literally there were five people in line. Corey walked to the table. He had his little bulletin, his little worship guide that night. And on that, he got this player that nobody knew about to sign his name, his signature. In fact, he told him, this is for my buddy, Matt. He's a big Alabama fan. And that night, that unknown player wrote on his little bulletin, worship guide, hey, Matt, I'll see you in the end zone, roll tide, number 37, Sean Alexander. Now, there's probably like five of you here today that are like, wow, you know, the rest of you need Jesus. I mean, just you need, <laughs> you have missed one of God's gifts to man, okay, in, in, in uh, the sense of football. Well, that name may not mean anything to you, but as an Alabama fan, he's one of the greatest players that ever played. In fact, four games into the next season, the two running backs before him would all get injured. His first handoff in college sports, he was at Baton Rouge playing LSU. The first handoff, he ran 76 yards for a touchdown. That doesn't normally happen. His second handoff was from his own 20-yard line, 80 yards for a touchdown. His first two carries of his college career were two touchdowns and 156 yards. You can't make that kind of stuff up. He went on to have a great career at Alabama. Sean Alexander went into the NFL. 2005 was the MVP of the NFL and is soon to be on the NFL Hall of Fame if they know what's good for them, right? <laughs> said, what does that illustration have to do with anything? The reality is that everybody in that building that night would say, here's the important person. Here is the significant individual. If you're going to get an autograph, if you're going to get to know someone, this is the person to know. But truth be told, I don't even remember who that quarterback was now. Truth be told, because of God's plans and God's purposes and the way that he orchestrated things, Sean Alexander went on to have an incredible career. Today, he still travels for FCA, and he speaks and shares the gospel all over the country today. It's amazing how God has worked in his life through football and even after that. But here's the simple fact. The fact of the matter is, sometimes we say this is insignificant and this is insignificant. And what I believe what God wants us to see is, it doesn't matter what we think. It doesn't matter our evaluation of others or of ourselves. What matters is what God has said of us. It matters what God has said of others. Perhaps there are others in our life because of bad decisions and bad choices. We've written them off like there can never be a change. There can never be hope. There can never be a future. And what God is saying, no, he has something different declared for them if they'll believe and walk by faith. Some of us, even this morning, we look at our own selves and we say, but God, look at what I've done. God, I've wasted so many years, but God, I couldn't do this. God, I can't do that. And what's important is not what we feel about ourselves, but what God has declared of us. The hindrance of insignificance. I want us to say three things from Mark chapter 10 this morning, and they're very simple. And yet I believe if we'll accept them and apply what Jesus is teaching us here, it'll have dramatic impact in our life. So three things from this hindrance of insignificance. First thing I want us to see this morning is the common problem of insignificance. The common problem of insignificance. The problems of insignificance are not uncommon. In fact, it is true in each of our lives, regardless of our race, regardless of our sex, regardless of background, regardless of experience, regardless of expertise, regardless of skills or abilities, the feeling of insignificance causes us to battle with all sorts of things from insecurities to fears and isolation and discouragement to depression to anger and so many things more. But I believe there are things that God wants to, show, wants to show us from Mark chapter 10 about dealing with this hindrance of insignificance. Well, how does this happen? How do we come to this place where we begin to feel insignificant, like we are inadequate, that we can't do this, that we can't accomplish this for the Lord? How do we get there? I think there's two things that stand out from Mark chapter 10 that kind of give us a glimpse of that. The first thing I would say is this, is what we'll call the assessment of others. The assessment of others. 
And that is that sometimes we have this feeling of insignificance because others have looked at us and they have looked at us and they have determined, they have concluded our own insignificance. Maybe it was because of the bad choices. Maybe it was because we didn't measure up in their eyes. Maybe it was because of some experience that took place against us. But the reality is, is that these things can happen. Listen to what the Bible says in Mark chapter 10, verse 13. The Bible says there were some people who were bringing children to Jesus. Now, we don't read that these are their parents. They could have been. We assume that parents were involved, but we don't know that for sure. This could have been aunts and uncles. This could have been simply concerned adults that recognize here is Jesus and and here are these children. But what we do know is this. They're doing all that they can to bring their children to Jesus. Now, this suggests to us that to some extent, they at least had a reverence for Jesus and a recognition of his authority. Bringing children to, to, uh, to be blessed, if you will, to be prayed over would not have been uncommon in that culture. In fact, in that day, most people, when they had a child at some point, they would bring the child to the temple where they would ask the rabbis to pray a prayer of blessing over them. But these individuals were not waiting for the rabbis. They weren't going through the formality of going to the temple. Instead, here comes Jesus. In fact, you get the context from Mark chapter 10 that he's likely going from village to village. He's in between from one place to the other. They see Jesus coming. They have heard of Jesus. They've perhaps heard his teachings. Perhaps they've heard of his miracles. And so what they do is they bring their children in anticipation that Jesus will care for them and that Jesus will bless them, that Jesus will take time for them. They have this hope in their hearts and in their minds that leads them to this action. But sadly, immediately upon them bringing these children to Jesus, we see a very sobering statement. Verse 13, but the disciples, the followers of Jesus, these individuals that had left everything to walk with the Lord, rebuked them. In fact, the word rebuke here literally means they reprimanded them. Now, how many of you love to get reprimanded? Not, not me. I, I don't enjoy it, right? Been a long time since it's happened, but it can happen. Here's the reality. What's happening in this moment is the disciples, listen, they are looking. These people are bringing their children to Jesus, and there's this, there's this hope that maybe Jesus, this, this one who claims to be the Son of God, this one who claims that he's going to give his life and raise again from the grave, this one who is literally declaring that he's preparing a place in heaven for all who believe, they're coming to Jesus with hopes that he would bless them and care for them, and, and, and this, that's the desire. But instead, the Bible says the disciples began rebuking them. Don't bring your children here. Don't do that. Jesus doesn't have time for this. Jesus has more important matters. There are other places to go. There are other people to see. There are more important things to be done. Jesus had come to earth to set up a physical, earthly kingdom. And so by that evaluation, the disciples, we understand from other passages of Scripture, there were times even where there was debate and discussion about who was going to be greatest in Jesus' kingdom. So they believe Jesus is going to set up an earthly physical kingdom and that maybe those who followed the closest and were the most influential and powerful in Jesus' group, if you will, that they'd have prized positions in this kingdom. So in the disciples' mind, they want this kingdom to be expanded. They want it to grow. And so they're thinking, hey, we need influencers and we need popular people and we need powerful people and we we need this type of people to be a part of the Lord's kingdom and his work. So when these parents and these adults, if you will, bring these children to Jesus, frankly, the disciples saw them as insignificant. Jesus is too important. There's greater things to be done. Now think of this for just a moment. These are mere children. Very young and likely small children. They had no money to bring to offer to the Lord's work. They had no amazing gifts or skills to offer to the Lord's kingdom. Amen over there. They had no major expertise and experience and abilities and wisdom and count. They had nothing to offer the Lord that would expand his kingdom. So the disciples assessed their insignificance. 
They are not worth the Lord's time, effort, or energy. That's what they've concluded. Second thing I want you to see, though, that leads us to this feeling of insignificance, it's not just the assessment of others. Sometimes there are people in our life, because of experiences and situations, they assess that of us. But here's the more challenging situation of insignificance. It's not only just the assessment of others, it's often even the assessment of ourselves. The assessment of ourselves. I think one of the major causes of insignificance is not what others have said to us, it is what we have believed about ourselves. Listen to what the Bible says in verse 13. The disciples rebuked them. The next statement goes on, but when Jesus saw this. Now, there's something about this in this moment that stands out startling to me. Something that we don't read about in the text. Something that is not described here. And that would be the actions of these adults and potentially these parents. Now, Parents, let me just ask you for just a moment. If your child was held out of something for no explained reason, what do you think you would do? If you, if you went to great effort and great energy uh, to try to help your child, to try to benefit your child, to try to bless them, and then you were completely turned away and you were done so in a harsh way, no, this is not going to work, and, and, and there's other things more important, and you're reprimanded that way, what are you going to do? Now, this was not the, ed- the disciples were not the educated Jewish priests of the day. They were common people like you and I. They were, they were uh, fishermen. Not that we do that bird trade, but they, they're hard workers. There's a tax collector over here. There's a guy who handles, handles the money. There, there's all kinds of different trades. There's, there's Simon the Zealot over here, right? There's, there's all these different things that are going on, but they were common, ordinary men. Here's the reality. These parents or these adults, most likely in that situation, would have spoken up. But wait a second. Why, why can't our children go to Jesus? Could, could Jesus spare just a moment of his time? Is there anything that we could do to, to allow this to happen so that Jesus can bless our children? No, the reality is, is in, that, in that moment, I kind of imagine that as the disciples are rebuking them, they're in essence kind of saying to these parents and these adults, who do you think you are? These are just little children. We're trying to start a movement here. Jesus is the king and he's only worthy of the best. This doesn't include you. Go back to your home. The master doesn't have time for you. And how do they respond? They say nothing. They don't ask for an explanation. They don't ask for an alternative. They don't try to strike a a compromise, if you will. They didn't speak up. Why not? I think the reason that in this moment they didn't speak up, the reason why they didn't kind of come up with some other deal or some other opportunity is because in their own hearts and lives, They agreed with the disciples. They assessed the situation and they knew it was true. These children had nothing to offer the Lord. There was nothing of monetary value, nothing really of earthly value, nothing of expertise, nothing of skill and wisdom, nothing of of, of, uh, ability. There's nothing they had to bring. And so they have assessed of themselves their own insignificance. So pastor, what are you saying? Here's what I'm saying. I believe there are many who are still like this today. Perhaps this is where you are this morning. Perhaps you can miss opportunities. I can miss opportunities for obedience and blessing simply because we have believed the lie that we are unimportant and insignificant in God's plan. It's one thing for others to say, well, you're unimportant. You can't do this. You don't have the abilities. You don't have the opportunities. You don't have the resources. But the reality is some of us have listened to the lie of, the, of Satan in our own lives for so long. We have believed that lie. And we've come to the place where we begin to feel like, you're right. I can't do this. I don't have the ability to do this. I don't have the experience that's needed for this. Let me illustrate that from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 4, the Bible tells us that God was calling a man by the name of Moses. God speaks through a burning bush to get Moses' attention. And God speaks to Moses and he says, Moses, I have chosen you, buddy. And and I've called you to go before Pharaoh. And and I'm going to work through you to release my people from from, from, uh, slavery here in Egypt. And I'm going to do a great work through you. And then we begin to see this tug of war going back and forth. God is calling, but Moses is saying, but I'm inadequate. I'm insufficient. 
God, I am insignificant. I am not able to do this. And yet God is going back and forth with them. So notice what the scripture says. God get Moses' attention. God says, Moses, I've got instructions for you. Here's what I want you to do. Exodus chapter three, verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? God, I hear what you're calling me to do. I know what you want me to do. You said it so crystal clear in my heart and mind. But God, who am I? I don't have the ability to do this. I can't do this on my own. And God begins to speak and respond. Well, Moses, you're not going to be alone. I'm going to be with you every step of the way. In fact, here's some evidences. Here's some specific instructions that I want to give you to go to the people. I'm going to write it out for you, Moses. Here's what I want you to do. So he makes it clear. And then Exodus chapter four, verse one, listen to what happens. Moses speaks up again. But God, what if they won't believe me or listen to what I say? The first question was, God, who am I to do this? The second question is, but what if I do this and nobody listens to me and everybody rejects me and then they ridicule me and then they persecute me? God, what then? God begins to give him some powerful proofs that he would be with him. And God does some things, frankly, that were absolutely impossible. God commissions him to go. Exodus chapter four, verse 10, we see again, Moses speaks, please, Lord, Kind of hear him whining a little bit. I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. In other words, God, I can't do it. I don't have the ability or skills that are needed. I don't have the gifts that are needed. God, surely there's somebody else. There's somebody else that can be better than me. And there's somebody else, God, that has these gifts and these talents. God, there's someone else that can speak better or talk better or minister better or whatever. Here's the reality. The reality is in this moment, Moses, as he's looking at himself, only saw his own limitations. And the truth is, is that the longer we focus on ourselves, the more we begin to realize our limitations. But here's the truth. It's not about what we are able to do. It's not about what your gifts and talents are. It's not about what I can accomplish or not. What it's about is, is whether God is calling us and whether we're willing to trust him and obey him or not. The longer our life is focused on ourselves, the more and more we will see only our limitations. But if we will focus on God and if we will look to him, we will realize with him all things are possible. There's nothing he can't do. Many of us miss what God is wanting to do because we're looking at ourselves and ultimately not at God. I want to remind you this morning, the Bible says of Satan himself that he is the accuser of the brethren. And then in John chapter 8, verse 44, it tells us that Satan is the father of lies, which literally means that he will continually lie to us. In fact, I would say to us this morning, every lie finds its source in Satan himself. Usually the most harmful lies in our lives aren't the ones that have been spoken to us, but the ones that we have spoken to ourselves. Where do these come from? Where do these lies of inadequacy and insignificance, where do these lies of you can't do this, where does it come from? It comes from Satan himself. Why? Because he's the thief who comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He wants to do all that he can to rob God of the glory that he'll receive when he works in you and through you in such a way that can only be explained by the power and hand of God. Think of that for just a moment. The fact of the matter is this, you may not feel like it, you may have been believing Satan's lie for a long time, but the Bible tells every single one of us that you and I, we have been fearfully and wonderfully made. You may not have discovered it yet. You may have ignored it for a long time. But the Bible also says that God has a plan and he has a purpose for our lives. We're not just here going through the motions. You're not just here by accident or by mistake. God has a plan and a purpose for you. You may be here and feel unloved like nobody even cares. But God looks at us through the cross and he says, but I love you. And I sent my son to give his life for you. You may feel undesired and unwanted, but through the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross and what he did. God, the Bible says, delights and he desires to adopt us into his family, that he would be our father and we would be his children. 
No, that listen, we may feel alone, like nobody cares, nobody's with us, but the Bible says at the moment of salvation, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God who will not leave you, who'll not forsake you, he'll comfort you, he'll guide you, he'll direct you every step of the way. He'll even give you gifts that are given for the purpose of edifying and building up the body of Christ, the church. So many feelings that we have that we give into when what we need to do is we need to get back to what does God's word say? When Satan ultimately comes to remind you of who he thinks you are, man, get back to God's word and remember what does God's word say I am? They say, well, I'm not the smartest person. No, that's Pastor Terry. I'm just making sure you're awake. I'm not the smartest person. You probably aren't. Well, I'm not the most talented person. You probably aren't. Well, I, I don't have the most experience. You probably don't. Great. That means there's plenty of room for God to work for him to get the glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31 says it this way. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, there aren't many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. The base things of the world, the despise God has chosen, the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that, listen to this, so that no man may boast before God, but by his doing. You were in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast where? In the Lord. God delights in calling people who may not be gifted, who may not have talents, who frankly might be despised and rejected, sometimes even seeming foolish. God delights in calling them and equipping those he calls so that he gets the glory. That's how God can take a shepherd boy with no military experience who can stand before a giant named Goliath and God can give him victory. Why? Because the glory would be to God. And if God can get glory in the life of a simple shepherd boy, please understand God can work in and through our lives so that he is glorified. That's what God can do. Oh, but pastor, you don't know the circumstance I'm in. You don't know the situation. You don't know how I've been done wrong. You don't know literally the prison that I'm in. If God could work in a prison cell in the life of a man named Joseph who was unjustly done and harmed in so many ways, and yet if God could work in his life and through his life literally to spare his entire people, please don't underestimate what God can do through you if you will simply trust him and obey him every step of the way. He will be glorified. If God can take a common, ordinary fisherman in that day and raise him up to preach to the masses of people to where literally in one moment, 3,000 people would be saved, their lives would be transformed and changed, don't underestimate what God can do through you if you just say yes. If God can take a murderer named Saul, radically change him, make him a brand new creation, set him free from the things of the past, and now give him a mission to make him the most famous missionary that we know of all throughout the New Testament and make him a man by the name of Paul. If God can do that in him, there's no telling what God can do through you. If we just be willing to say yes, God will be glorified. The problem of insignificance is very common, but notice what Jesus does next. In one quick moment... In one sudden action of response, I believe God shows us here how he views people. Specifically, those who culture would say, mm, not too important. If Jesus would do this for the least of these, there's a powerful message here of how he can work in our lives as well. The common problem of insignificance, the second thing I want you to see this morning is the constant passion of Jesus. Verse 14, what is Jesus passionate about? What, how does he treat those who by the culture are perceived as insignificant? Or even perhaps in their own hearts and minds, as you think about these adults accepting the fact that they're insignificant. Verse 14, but when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And said to them, 
Permit the children, permit these little ones, the least of these, those that the disciples have called insignificant, those that the disciples have said, I don't have any time for, permit them to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. If anybody understood Jesus' passion, it should have been the disciples. When I was a teenager, a song we used to sing all the time in our youth group was, simple phrase of the chorus was, God loves people more than anything. Here, here's the reality. If anybody should have known Jesus' passion for people and his concern for all, even the least of these, surely it should have been the disciples. Matthew chapter 21, here's a great illustration of that. Matthew 21, Jesus goes into the temple and the Bible tells us that the people were trading and selling and they were making profit, taking advantage of the people. Jesus, if you remember, he's, I mean, he's like cleaning house. He's like flipping over the tables, money's flying everywhere. He rebukes them and he says, you've made my father's house, which is to be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. Maybe you anybody remember the story? The Bible says immediately after Jesus did this, he allowed the blind and the lame and the diseased into the temple. Now, now before this, those who were disabled or those who had ailments, they were kind of kept at an arm's length while the, while the Jewish leaders were in control. But as soon as Jesus cleans house, Jesus opens up the door and there's a powerful picture there. He's literally saying, bring them all, open the doors wide open. I want everybody to come. But not only that, the next statement in Matthew 21 says, and the children were there. In fact, the children are singing and shouting out loud, Hosanna to the son of David. And Jesus, he's letting it happen. He's like, he said, listen, I, yeah, bring anybody, disabled, sure, bring them on in. Those are these, absolutely, my, day, my doors are open. I want them all to come. Children, absolutely, bring them on. Jesus was so welcoming of all that he even allowed the Pharisees to remain in the room. The Pharisees, if you remember, they were the self-righteous, like legalistic bunch. They weren't there to worship Jesus. They, they were there kind of judging him and whispering behind the scenes about what they were saying. Can you believe he did that? Oh, you remember that person? They're, they're, they're that way because of their sin. I can't believe Jesus is letting them in here. He's that guy. He's an Auburn fan. Stay far away from him, you know. No, he likes UVA. You know, I mean, just. The Pharisees are in their judgmental mindset, and, and yet Jesus allowed them all in. It was a powerful picture because Jesus knew he came, listen, he came to seek and save all who would come to him. So when they began to rebuke, I want you to see three things about Jesus' passion. The first thing we see is we see his indignation. The Bible tells us as a result of their rebuke, as a result of their assessment, hey, they're insignificant. They don't deserve Jesus' time. There's other things to be done. The Bible says when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. It literally means that he felt deep emotional pain. Now, it's not saying that he felt this necessarily at the disciples, but I believe he certainly felt this over their actions. If anyone should have known his heart for all, if anyone should have known his concern for all, it should have been the disciples. If anyone should have known his heart to bless children, it was the disciples. In the gospel of Mark alone, for example, in Mark chapter 5, verse 41, Jesus had already raised Jairus' young daughter from the dead. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus had already looked at the Syrophoenician woman's daughter who was demon-possessed, and he had delivered her and set her free. In Mark chapter 9, verse 25 through 26, there was another boy who was possessed by a demon. And again, Jesus healed him and delivered him and set him free. And then in Mark chapter 9, verse 37, Jesus had even already declared to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. If there's anybody that should have gotten his heart for the world and his heart for the least of these, if there's anyone that should have understand, understood his passion for those that the world considered insignificant, it should have been the disciples. But they missed it. It's a powerful moment for us to understand that Jesus has a heart and a passion for all, including those that the world says are insignificant, the ones that the world says are the least of these. It brought into indignation, but not only do we see his indignation, but the second thing we see is his instruction. Jesus didn't just have this passion that 
feeling. The Bible says he gave clear instruction. Verse 14, permit, he gives this word of instruction, permit the children to come to me. Allow them to come to me. And secondly, do not hinder them. Guys, I care so much for the least of these. I care so much for these that you are judging as insignificant. I care so much for these, regardless of their background and where they're coming from, regardless of their race, regardless of what they have done or not done, regardless of what's been done against them. I care for them so much. You allow them in. Open the doors wide open. Stop hindering them. Friend, I want to remind us this morning that it is not our right to judge who can and can't come to the Lord. It's not our position to stand like the Pharisees and try to determine who is worthy and who's unworthy. Jesus says by the cross, all are welcome, all can come, all are worthy because I paid the price for them. That's why the Bible says in John 3, 16, God so loved the part of the world. That's not what it says. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. That's why the Bible tells us in the book of Romans chapter 3, verse 22, literally the righteousness of God through faith is in Jesus Christ. It is for all those who believe. Romans chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You might be here this morning and feel insignificant. You feel hurt. There's all these different things that have happened in your life, but I'm telling you this morning, because of that word world and that word all, that includes you. But this is not my home country. That includes you. But I'm not from Harrisonburg. Neither am I. That includes you. But I'm not an Alabama fan. God will forgive you, okay? All includes you. No exceptions, no conditions. So he sees instruction. Don't hinder them. The context is stop hindering them. Mark chapter 9, verse 42, Jesus gave this word of caution and warning. He said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone was hung around his neck and he'd been cast into the sea. That's a sobering statement. He's showing us the importance of not demeaning and not providing a stumbling block and not looking down upon. Gives us a word of instruction. But the final thing I want you to see about this is his invitation. These are the very children that the disciples have just judged as insignificant. And then what does Jesus say in verse 14? Guys, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. <laughs> Guys, I know you've come to your own conclusion that they are insignificant and unimportant. But I'm telling you that the very kingdom of God, heaven itself, belongs to those such as these. And guys... If you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, if you want to experience heaven, if you want to know that your sins have been forgiven, you've been set free, that heaven is your home, you're just passing through, you must become like a child. How often do we look at our children sometimes, maybe we say it or think it, you need to grow up and be mature, right? My children now, you know, when they're little, it's one thing, but once they get eight, nine, ten, you need to act like an adult and be mature, right? Jesus says spiritually, if we want to inherit the kingdom of God, we must become like a child. Why? Are children perfect? Nope. Especially in my house, I know they ain't perfect, okay? <laughs> children are not perfect. But you know what children are? Children are sensitive to the things of God. And they readily receive it by faith. Children, especially young children, they don't debate it. They don't ponder, well, could this be true or not? They don't look for all the different things of the world. They don't even look, well, what is this going to cost me? And am I sure I want to do this? Is this going to make me uncomfortable or not? No. You tell a child that God loves them, 
that even though they're a sinner, Jesus died on the cross for their sins and rose again. And if they'll believe in him and accept him as Lord, they'll be forgiven and saved. You know what a child will say? I'm ready. I believe. Jesus is showing us the tenderness that's required, the sensitivity of us to seek the Lord, to hear what he has to say, to understand his promises, to trust his promises, to have faith and obey. A child will hear God's word, they will accept it, they will believe it, and they will act on it. Oftentimes as adults, we sit back and think, what's it going to cost me? Am I willing to or not? Warren Wiersbe said it this way, children live by faith. By faith, they accept their lot, trusting others to care for them and see them through. We too must enter God's kingdom by faith like little children, helpless, unable to save ourselves, totally dependent on the mercy and grace of God. Third thing I want you to see, and that is this, I want you to consider the priority of Jesus. Notice what Jesus does. Here come these children. They're being brought to Jesus. Do they have any money to bring? No. Any skills or expertise? They're just children. Do they have any special ability or skill, any incredible knowledge to bring? And the ultimate answer is absolutely not. But notice what Jesus does. As they come, the Bible says in verse 16, he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Please understand, so often in our culture, we try to find our worth in our jobs, in our positions. We try to find our worth in our successes and in our wealth and what the world says of us and our respectful situation. Or we try to find even our worth in our, in our family and our skills and our abilities and whatever else. But understand in this moment what Jesus is showing us beyond the simple fact that we must come with the faith of a child is God is showing us our worth is not found in all the things that the world says are important. Our worth is found in the fact that we are recipients of his unconditional love and grace. Jesus is showing us in this moment that he cares even for the least of these, even those who were made to feel insignificant. He took time to bless them. He took time to care for them. He took time to pray for them. He took time to show them their worth. This morning, I believe what God is showing us is this, regardless of where we've been and what we bring or what we don't bring, we are deeply loved. By his grace, we can be completely forgiven. By being forgiven, we can be fully pleasing and totally accepted by God because of the worth that he has given to us. This morning, as I close this message, you may be here this morning and say, I mean, I, I don't feel very loved. Maybe true. The simple fact of the matter is, is God has loved you so much he sent his son Jesus to die for you. You can say, well, I, I don't feel wanted or desired. God desires you. In fact, he desires that you will come by faith so that you are adopted into his family. He'll be your father, you'll be his child. You may feel unimportant or insignificant, but through the cross, God shows you that you are valuable and priceless and of great worth to him. There are many lies the enemy will give you to say you are inadequate, you're insignificant, you can't do whatever. But the focus of our life and our heart must be this. Look to Jesus Look to Jesus, knowing that he says you matter to him. And the fact is, that's really all that matters. It's not about my experience or your experience, my abilities, your ability. It's not about those things. It's really a matter of this. Am I willing to look to the Lord, trust him, and obey? For some of us this morning, we have been sitting on the sidelines for a long time feeling inadequate, insufficient. We can't do whatever it is we think God is calling us to do. And truth be told, as long as we keep believing that lie, we will sit there and do nothing for eternity. Some of us here this morning, God might be calling us for the very first time to serve him, to minister, to serve in that missions context, to give generously. I don't know, many different ways God can call and speak. And already you're starting to think through, but oh man, it's going to cost this. I don't know if I had this time. I... And all the different excuses begin to come. 
What I challenge you to do this morning is to recognize, yes, you may not be able to do it in your own strength, but if you surrender to the Lord and trust him, you will find every single time he will be with you, he will help you, and he will do greater things in you and through you than you could ever imagine, ever. If God could work in the lives of these little ones in such a profound way, there is no telling what God can do in our lives if we will just say yes to him. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and praise you. Thank you for your goodness in our lives. I thank you for the simple reminder that you called us to come just like a child with that same sort of faith and trust and even obedience. God, I confess as an adult that usually when you call me, even still, (laughs) it's so easy to start trying to logically figure it all out. It's so easy to make excuses. It's so easy to think first of all the reasons why I can't or shouldn't. When in reality, God, you're just simply wanting me to say yes, to trust you. God, it's easy for us to deal with the pressures of the world and all the feelings of inadequacy to think that we don't have the skills or the talents or the abilities or the resources or whatever else. But God, I'm also reminded here today that in and of ourselves, we will never have the ability or the resources or the skills. It's in surrendering to you and trusting you and being obedient that you equip us, you grow us, you mold us and you shape us. I'm grateful for that. God, I pray that you would be with each of us here today, that we would be willing to respond with faith and obedience in such a way that it would be obvious in our life that it is not us, but that it's you that's at work. God, as we gather here this week for Vacation Bible School, no doubt there's gonna be lots of things that are exciting, but I pray that we'd not look at the worship team or the Bible study leaders and all different things and think that it's them because it's not. It's you working through them. So may our boasting be in you. God, as we gather here together, should there ever be a time that someone would leave and say, well, man, that message just really spoke. God, may, may we all know it's not the message of a man, but it's you that's working and moving and speaking. God, I thank you that you take the foolish and despised things and you work in such a miraculous, mighty way that you confound even the wise. God, may we today find our sufficiency and our significance. May we find our worth in you, in who you have called us to be and what you have declared us to be. I prayed in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.